Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. This is a special episode. We've been doing those a little more often lately. We have. Which is kind of fun. And the reason is because this episode is going to be um, a promotional episode. Mm -hmm. And because it's a promotional episode, we didn't want it to be the only thing that we were releasing. So we're going to give this as an extra one. That's right. It's basically a bonus. That's right. Uh Bonus promo. A bonus promo. That's exactly what it is. Come be with us. Yes. (laughs) Thing. Uh But... um, so similar to the last promotional episode that we did, uh, we're going to talk about somatic integration and processing. Yes, we are. Which is our case conceptualization model, because we've got a couple trainings coming up. We have a virtual training, and we also have a seated training in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the which will be a hybrid training, which means that can also mm-hmm. be attended virtually. Um, and we'll give you guys uh, dates on those. Do we have dates on those? Um, you should the, look them up while I'm talking. <laughs> well, wait, which one did you say? Cause, uh, the virtual one in July, July 22nd to the 24th. Okay. seven twenty two through four. Yeah. And then in October, we're going to be seven through nine. Yeah. So October 7th through the 9th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And you can also attend that one virtually. Yeah. And I think also, so this episode is going to have some features, mm-hmm. um, of uh, people that we work very closely with, two people in particular. And so while this is a promo for SIP because it's the most, I think, like readily accessible training that we have that Mm -hmm. we really want to get people interested in, um, both of these individuals um, that we're going to introduce you to today uh, are a part of what we're doing on a larger scale. That's true. And so this not only is a promo for SIP, but this is also... Um, just an invitation to become all the more involved with what we're really doing. Well, which sort of begs the question, Bridger, what are we doing? Yes, and that's what I hoped we could talk about because we already did like a SIP yeah. Like here, here is what SIP is and why it's wonderful. But we haven't yeah. really talked about it's true. what the larger thing we're doing is, uh-huh. and I think we should okay. because it's really cool. I do too. So let's start there, and then we will introduce you to our first Somatic Integration and Processing International Ambassador. Her name is Mel. And we call her UK Mel. Uh, yeah, because, because you're I'm, Mel. I'm US Mel. US and, Mel. Uh, Us have, Mel. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have UK Mel, who uh, is, uh, yeah, just a, a, a wonderful, yeah, a wonderful relationship that has started up recently. And so we're going to share some of her thoughts with you. And then we have uh, somebody that we work with locally as well, mm-hmm. who is one of our local ambassadors for SIP. Domestic. Domestic ambassador. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually going to let you guys listen in as uh, two people that have been a part of the training, but more importantly, have really uh, taken SIP as a way of integrating a larger mission and vision into the work that they're doing individually as a therapist, collectively in the communities that they're a part of, and then on the bigger scale, really imagining that maybe we could shift culture as a whole um, globally around what it means to actually be a helper and a healer in a therapeutic setting Mm -hmm. and what do we need to be focused on and also how do we do that work in a way that doesn't burn us out and kill us (laughs) yeah so this is a unrehearsed between Mel and I unrehearsed like what are we doing I don't know what are we doing yeah Um, 
and I think that that bears saying just because it is coming from us and that um, I, I think for me is what makes it so special is that we're, you know, we started by just coming together as people that wanted to view work and life differently mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. as, you know, we wanted to partner with our friends and mm -hmm. uh, people that had very similar ideas mm -hmm. about the work that they were doing and how they wanted to do the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that really just blossomed into what is now beyond healing. Um, that I think is just so beautiful to see grow and continue to grow. And for me, that is focused on psychotherapy theory and then integrating that into practice, but then mm -hmm. also um, the culture of psychotherapy as a whole. Yeah. What does it mean to be a helper in this field? And why do we have this strange view that this is the way that it's always going to be? Mm. The this supervision the model. This should be right. or has to be. Yeah. Yes. The yes. supervision model, this agency model, this individual practice model, mm -hmm. this private pay model that, mm -hmm. you know, why, why are these things so archaic and rigid? And why is it so upsetting to some people to walk in and start questioning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, being curious is the fundamental posture of a researcher. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's always been so strange to see feathers get ruffled when we really start talking about yeah, but they these do. ideas. Oh, man, they do. So I have lots of thoughts about that. I obviously. want you to just share it. This is just you and me right now, <laughs> Mel. true. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the educational experience of therapists from beginning to end. And there, most of us, you know, have this point in our life where we remember making a decision. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to grad school, which is a huge decision. And I'm going to become a therapist. I'm going to go through this long, detailed, hard process to be licensed by the state to do therapy. And we barely even know what exactly we're committing to yeah. at the point that we commit to it. I want to help people. Yeah, I, I want to help people. And this seems to be the path to do it. And yeah. so I'm going to get on this path. And we get into a grad school situation and suddenly we're being taught all these ideas about the right way to do things. Mm. And being given all this information about what research says is evidence-based and why it's evidence-based and all of the limitations and all of the things that, you know, put us in boxes in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed and ethical boundaries and things like that. And in observing a lot of people go through that process and my own process, we come out of that experience pretty afraid. Mm. And... Um, very, very aware of the limitations that have just been put on us and the boxes mm. that we've been told that we need to yeah. live in. in order. Yeah, yes. Demands even. Right like literal, wrong. yes. Yeah, like literal, you have to do it this way or else kind of demands. And all of those things are there for valid reasons. Mm. But most of us were never taught the nuances of why those rules were there in the first place. And as happens with everything that gets institutionalized, when you get away from the why of the rule, you don't know how to appropriately break the rule. <laughs> That's right. When necessary. <laughs> yes, when necessary. And and even how to interpret 
the rules. I mean, the, the reason you guys were, why we have the legal, um, system that we do is because all laws require interpretation Mm. and that is true as therapists as well. And so what we find is tremendous diversity in the interpretation of the rules that we're supposed to live under as therapists. And what has happened is because fear is a huge motivator, especially in large agency settings, the most common interpretation of the rule is the fear-based interpretation yeah, and the freedom limiting interpretation. Yes. And creativity so, limiting. Yes. All of those things. And there's good reason for that, right? If you can formulaic everything and, mm-hmm. you know, make cookie cutters of therapists, basically, mm-hmm. um, then you can control the outcome and you can, you know, measure things more adequately. Avoid and as failure. An, yes. And as an agency, um, you can make systems and things like that to support this big thing that you're trying to keep going. So I understand how we got to where we were or where, how we are. Um, but I think what happens for a lot of us is that we begin to feel at some point, some earlier than others, that this isn't really conducive to the kind of healing that we wanted to experience with our clients, that something is missing. Yeah. And I think also recognizing that it's turning us as helpers into humans that we didn't really want to be, never really wanted to be. (laughs) Yeah. And certainly puts us into positions that we never wanted to be in. That's right. And so... I think pretty early on, uh, for both of us, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah. And I spent a ton of time thinking about burnout because I went through, you know, a version of my own and that's what prompted me to leave agency life and start a private practice and do that whole thing. And in reflecting on all of the years of going through my education, my supervision, um, licensure process, all of that. What I was taught more often than not was a fear-based way of being a therapist. Yeah. And that resulted in tremendous amounts of stress, burnout, and low work satisfaction and terrible work-life balance, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is probably very relatable to a lot of us. And so when we say that writing SIP was not just about creating a case conceptualization model, what we mean is that it was about reconceptualizing the way to live as a therapist. To embody the work. Yeah, the way to exist in our life as the therapist yeah. in a way that was honoring of both our humanity and the humanity and the needs of our clients Yeah, and our coworkers and okay. colleagues as well. And I think there are others that have done this Mm -hmm. that have talked this way Mm -hmm. harry aponte being one of them the person of the therapist um but what yalom talks about it yeah y'all oh there's so many Mm -hmm. that yeah those are just examples there's so many people you know we're not the first to think about hey we should be intentional about how we embody this work (laughs) not at all not even close but what we feel at least here in springfield here locally and what we're finding such great receptivity to globally Mm -hmm. um is our emphasis on intersubjectivity and just the way that we embody this work. Yeah. yeah the humanity and the relationships and the, the true connection that yeah. is experienced through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from, you know, the reason that that is for, for me at least is that we have a common language, sure, in mm-hmm. SIP, mm-hmm. and we know that it is going to be very sophisticated and depth-oriented in mm-hmm. its revelations to us. Mm-hmm. But in that, the invitation of intersubjectivity um, to recognize when we're afraid yeah. of being um, wounded or even attacked or even uh, 
slighted against mm-hmm. um, by ourselves or by others and to see how we choose objectivity. So, mm-hmm. well, I'm a therapist and therefore I need to watch your transference and right. countertransference. You right. know, we have all these strategies that we bake into the objective identities mm-hmm. that we choose. But to know that subjectivity is something to be found together in mm-hmm. safety, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that to me is really what what makes this so special. Yeah. Well, and I, just to second and kind of further emphasize what you're saying, I think as a field as a whole, when we experienced the challenges of what it means to live this way, live Mm. as a therapist, right? Live that lifestyle. We figured out real fast that we had to have some kind of strategy to keep ourselves safe from being overwhelmed by it. And the original strategy was to retreat into objectivity. Yeah, therapist hat. Yeah, yeah. and so that I, my humanity might be protected. Cloaked. Yeah, behind that objectivity and that role that I can play and that hat that I wear. And there's a kind of intelligence to that. Sure. It it is effective in some ways. But the price that we pay for hiding behind objectivity is one that a lot of us are kind of overpaying. Yeah. (laughs) Not willing anymore. And we don't, we're not taught to look at the cost. Right. Well, so that's a great question. What is the cost that we pay of hiding in objectivity? Oh, my body just, even in asking that question, bottomed out. Uh-huh. Um, it's like a draining of energy. Yeah. It's like uh, without awareness, you know, without any of the lights turned on, I just imagine marching mm-hmm. aimlessly. Mm-hmm. Trudging. Trudge. That's a good word for it. Just yeah. Be a robot. You need to keep trudging. You need to keep walking. Yeah. How far are we going? Stop asking questions. Yeah, it's it's not helpful to know how far you have to go or how many years you're going to have to do this. That's not for you to know. Yeah. You must keep going. Yeah. People need you. Uh huh. Uh huh. The work needs you. It's worth it. My feet hurt. Stop complaining. (laughs) That's really how it feels. It's true. Um, with a myriad of other examples. Right. Right. But I'm when, tired. My heart hurts. Yeah. This is so hard. Yeah. Right. I need mm-hmm. to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without awareness, the field itself almost shows a mirror of uh, judgment. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be doing this. And if yeah. you can't, that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. You there, failed. Yeah. And the, the attitude of, um, well, have a good self-care practice. To me, that is the toxic positivity version. Toxic of... <laughs> positivity afterthought. Yes, yes. Uh, well, don't you have a good self-care practice? Right. It's gonna That's all about self-care, burnout, right? Uh, no, I have a kick-ass self-care practice, and I'm still burning I'm still out tired. over here. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, you know, the, that realization first that, oopsie, we've all been hiding behind objectivity. We've been hiding behind the roles that we play. And the reason why we did that is because we were literally taught that that is the right way to do it. Yeah, very objectively. Yes, yes. And if you think about even relationships with professors between professors and students or between supervisor and student, et cetera, Mm. they are all objectified roles that we play. The educational experience is a very objectifying experience. You produce this product, I grade said product, yeah. and give you your grade back. You know the yeah. phrase cookie cutter? Right, exactly. It's literally making an object out yes. of a subject. Yes, and and that is, for, for many of us, that's exactly what happened. And at least for me, the thing that I 
never heard in a grad school situation was the most important thing that you can do as a therapist is know how to think deeply and feel deeply about what is happening in the room with your client. That's right. (laughs) Nobody ever said anything Mm. even remotely like that to me. How beautiful. Right. And since then, I have decided that that is true. That's what you will say. That is what I say everywhere to anyone that will listen to me. meaningful thing. Yeah. And, um, That is very much why we decided to create a case conceptualization model rather than a therapeutic model or or modality, modality. Mm -hmm. meaning here is a list of interventions to do. We wanted therapists to feel supported in knowing how to think and process and um, make sense of their own experience in the therapeutic environment. Pleading with one another to stay curious and Mm -hmm. not critical. Right. Right. Well, yes. And to to be open rather than definitive about anything. And then holding loosely instead of gripping. Right. But then having enough framework and structure that I can stay open. Yes. And still make progress and still have, you know, measurable, verifiable (laughs) um, something to show at the end of the session. Not eclectic negligence. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I just grab everything. I don't really know. Yeah. I do a little of this. I do a little of that. I'm centered. Yeah. Right. And and the reason why we make fun of that is because what happens usually is when somebody says they're person-centered, they don't know what they really mean. And it's so that's what they're line. saying. Yeah. Yep. Um, but true person-centered therapy is beautiful. It's when intersubjective. We know, yes. When we know what that actually yes. means. But most of us have been kind of set adrift without a theory that really feels like it's holding us yeah. and and supporting us in that um yeah complicated and messy process of helping another human reach their healing goals and being a guide for them and what we got really really passionate about was the idea that we could maybe create something that would help therapists feel supported in their day-to-day process yes not to tell them what to do and whether or not what they're doing is right, but to help them have a, a framework and a process for them to go through internally yeah. to be like signposts to them of try this route, right? And if that doesn't go, well, try this route. These are the things that matter. These are right. the things to monitor. These are the things that don't yeah. matter so much. If you've much. been around the podcast for any amount of time, you know, you've heard us talk about what is inside SIP. Right. Um, and so when we're talking about the guiding posts, um, it's not just us saying uh, basically like a person-centered consultation model, like you're just saying, you know, oh, you're doing great and mm-hmm. I know it's hard, and mm-hmm. but, you know, trust your gut and things like that. It's not just blind yeah. right. encouragement. Right. It is very deep theory that is then integrated Mm -hmm. into the person of the therapist. And it's from that embodiment that the direction forward emerges. So can I tell you literally my favorite thing about SIP? I would love to hear it. (laughs) Absolutely. So my absolute favorite thing about writing it, teaching it, practicing it, all of it, is that to me, the embodiment of SIP feels like the most lovely blend of really hard neuroscience and deep spirituality all at the same time. That's it. And it just tickles me pink every time. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) That suddenly there's a way of embodying both because I feel like for both you and I, um, I mean, that's certainly a value that we have at 
beyond healing is that we are very, very spiritual creatures, not just us here, but as humans, um, that we are deeply spiritual creatures and that that is a huge part of our health and well-being. And also we are mammals with mammal bodies and mammal nervous systems. And so it's in the, the combination of, of those two of being able to really embody both my deep spirituality and my hard neuroscience all in the same moment that we, we get that feeling of, I am allowed to be fully me in this moment and feel like I know what the heck I'm doing. Yes. And that is a great feeling. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And the know what the heck I'm doing part is really about that curiosity i can't say it enough you know just breadcrumbs yes you're learning how to follow the trail how to know what kind of bread it came Mm -hmm. from you know Mm -hmm. how to know which things not to pay attention to which things to order more emphatically or with more importance it it is so supportive to the person Mm -hmm. of the therapist and that's what we're finding so much um and why we wanted to do this episode as sort of a promo but Mm -hmm. also a invitation to come into the culture of beyond healing and really help us spread this and invite more people into Mm -hmm. it because we want ambassadors all over the world and we already are seeing it happen which is so so cool cool. yes we've been in communication with somebody in south africa recently yes and if you're listening to this which i hope you are please get us there (laughs) yes we would love to come um love to come um yeah, so this episode um, is special. You know, it's yeah. a bonus episode. Um, and so you just heard two of the originators talking mm-hmm. about SIP. And now you're going to listen to Mel, uh, UK Mel. UK Mel, and, yeah. Um, this is a person who... Um, is a clinical psychologist and trained in uh, cognitive analytic therapy, um, CBT, and also uh, EMDR. EMDR and acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and uh, she is the clinical director of an organization called Trust Psychology um, in Newcastle, England, and uh, has a multidisciplinary team there focused on um, not just uh, psychotherapeutics, but also pain, mm-hmm. uh, treating mm-hmm. treating those with pain, pain management, yeah. pain management, and even uh, getting to the source of it, which yeah. is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, what you're getting ready to listen to, is a conversation between her and I over Zoom um, that uh, kind of just unfolded very naturally in the beginning of one of our consultation calls where she said, you know, can I have a few minutes to talk to you about a presentation that I'm getting ready to give, uh, to my, the other people in my practice. Um, and so just naturally, I just said, can, can we record it yes. and I'll share it with people? Yeah. And she's like, sure. <laughs> so, um, you're getting ready to listen to Mel and I talk about that. And what I want you to really pay attention to, um, is what it feels like for you to listen to Mel talking about integrating SIP. Mm, mm -hmm. She took SIP um, a couple months ago, and that's SIP one that she took, and instantly wanted to become our first international ambassador. Yeah. And I thought that was so beautiful. But she has really been so disciplined in her efforts to um, be patient with it, trusting its strength and depth Mm -hmm. and sophistication and applicability, but really wanting to embody it as something that is cultural and not just pragmatic or or modality based really wanting to adopt it fully Mm -hmm. and so i want you to just listen to mel talk about that and and we interact on a couple different points but really thinking about you know the beginning of this conversation 
on this episode about why we even started this work, Mm -hmm. which is to help inform and create a cultural movement. Yeah. Uh, That's, we're serious. Yeah, we actually mean it. We actually, that's, (laughs) that's actually what we're doing. Not just like, yeah, yeah, some pie in the sky, you know, oh yeah, wouldn't it be fun to see things differently? No, we're serious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We're, we're, we're desperately every day um, working towards, um, Inviting, yes, inviting yeah. mm-hmm. um, and creating community around invitation and mm-hmm. co-regulation mm-hmm. with supreme emphasis on excellence yeah. in the therapeutic room. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Humanity and excellence yes. all at the same time. All at the same time. <laughs> so um, listen in and then we'll come back um, after the interview and talk a little bit about uh, Andrea as well. Yeah. I'm meeting as the yeah the director of trust psychology and trust pain management with my wider team tomorrow and as part of our discussions after service updates I'm going to do a CPD or continuing professional development slot where I just give a real outline in terms of where what is SIP where did it come from my journey to finding it and what are the main concepts how are we applying it how could we apply it in our work and just the future partnerships and collaborations that may be possible, even though it's very early days. Mm. Um, and as a very brief overview, the case, SIP being a case conceptualization or what we would call um, more in the UK vocabulary, a formulation model, which brings together core, three core ideas in psychotherapy. I know it's, it's more than three, Bridger, but as a core understanding of the attachment lens the AIP lens and polyvagal theory and the neuroscience basis to our way the brain processes trauma. And um, I wondered about framing it is what's our current problem in our service? And we do have a number of very good formulation models, but they tend to be very therapy model specific. Um, we've, we do have the 5P model as a presenting, precipitating, that's kind of kind of the standard clinical psychology training model. Oh, beautiful. But, I'm glad that was so familiar to you then in the, in the training yeah, when yeah. it came up. <laughs> and the role of the perpetuating in terms of the maintaining factors and the protective, but I, I always felt process was missing from that. I always thought it should be six Ps. Mm. And especially for our pain clients, seven Ps, the physical limitations and the role of the functional team of physiotherapy and occupational therapy um, and I've, I've I understand this is using a bit of your language and a bit of my language but again I'd, without just trying to get that basis between promoting the idea loyally but remaining copyright um, to yourselves mm-hmm. the, the SIP works on the principle as is my reading of it that we really need to integrate what we know works in psychotherapy so the role of the mind and the body in the relational context of the past's influence on the present. Before I did my psychology clinical training, um, I was drawn to the idea that aren't humans fascinating and isn't this amazingly interesting theory and area of understanding. And then after my initial undergrad degree, understanding what you can actually use this to help people but you can apply these psychological fascinating ideas to improve distress and behavior change. So that's amazing. 
But then after I did my clinical training and started understanding about different therapy models like CBT, cognitive analytic therapy, CATS, now EMDR and IFS and internal family systems, all of these different ACT and CFT therapies, I'm left in my years post-qualification asking these questions. Why does this stuff only work sometimes or not at all? And what instinctively in the room seems to make the difference? And I, over the last few years, I've concluded that my first question as a qualified psychologist doing therapy was asking, can I please offer useful strategies that help? So technique focus, which is the thing where a lot of people start in their understanding of psychotherapy. What can I do to make the person better? So CBT, brilliant for that, ACT, CFT, mindfulness, all brilliant techniques, but it doesn't do the job because then I have to ask the next question, can I please talk about what I instinctively feel is happening in the room? And can I please acknowledge the relational dynamics that I'm feeling? How do I have language for the process, the intersubjectivity that you all talk about? And that's where I got drawn to CAT because to, for me, CAT gave the answers to that as a model. But then I was asking, but where's the body? Can I please involve the body as well as the mind? So where's the somatic? And that drew me to EMDR, polyvagal theory, somatic experiencing. And then in the last five to 10 years, really, how can we fully acknowledge the role of the past and all of the emerging evidence in neurobiology and the role of the nervous system? So this trauma-informed working. So. All of those questions felt like they added something to the picture for the clinical experience. Mm. But then you just go, <laughs> ah, it's just too much. Like, how do you integrate this? How do you decide in the room, in the moment, which elements to bring in? And that's where I'm suggesting that, in my view, SIP is the model that brings this closest together based on our current understanding. I know you as well as others in the training are talking about this is just where we're up to for now. It will evolve, it will develop, but the core role of integration and intersubjectivity, making use of these multiple lenses. And then I've got still a little bit to finish off before tomorrow, but just wanting to talk about the layering of the models on top of each other via your triangle model, which I think is a really elegant, concise way of capturing a visual, visible, like visible representation mm -hmm. of the, the intersecting Venn diagrams into the triangle. So you've got the three lenses, but then layering on Maslow, which just blew my head away. <laughs> yes. The right left hemispheres, the triangle brain, the different levels and how you have to come back to core safety and just loop what's tolerable mm. each time. And then as you and I have talked about since, you can even add parts work on top of that if you think about core self yeah. being lying back down. And so the latter part, just thinking about the, um, really recommend that as many people as possible do your three-day training and then make use of the case conceptualizations. And that's where I'm at with you at the moment, mm. just applying this in principle. And working together could be a possibility just in terms of working towards these different satellite or ambassador roles, 
but potential training at different points in time in the future in different locations. But ongoing research and theory development, you know, how can you apply this to multidisciplinary team working when you've got professionals that are less psychologically trained? Sure. To apply to chronic pain, physical health, and also what you were all talking about in terms of team working and the relational dynamics of a yeah. culture or creating that within leadership. You mentioned last week or last conversation that we had um, that one of your one of your cat um, supervisors had had told you sort of you know Mel don't get too swept up into this trauma informed <laughs> movement and I've, that has stuck with me because what she said was and I think this is if if I'm remembering incorrectly let me know but what she said was it's really about organizing experience and what impacts our ability to organize experience. And the reason I kept thinking about that is because that's really all we care about anyway. It's all about organizing experience. The only reason we talk about trauma is because it has such a profound impact on the human organism's ability or perhaps inability to organize information in a way that is adaptive and that promotes safety within connection. Yes, that's really helpful way to describe it because I think that's the challenge is mm. sharing with colleagues and referrers to our service mm. that we want to be aware of the impact on trauma because it's so profound and it is part of the process of reorganization but unless we understand how it impacts on information processing in the brain and how it interferes in relationship safety development then um, it may be that you do the direct trauma work, but it may be you don't need to, but you need to have that as part of your framework that it, it's massively. Yes, that important. has to be a part of your formulation mo model yeah. or it, you're going to be missing pieces and asking why is this person not progressing or even why does it seem so compartmentalized yeah. in, in the work? Why can't this globalize to other relationships in their life? Yeah, and 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 because re, we we recognise the fragmentation that we see in cases, but we don't, and the the system can be fragmented in how it treats people. But we often, I think, we know that integration is important. But I think it's yeah, having a framework that you can then apply in a very practical way to you know our overall focus is integration, but actually moment to moment in our looping in the session of what's within what Kat would call the person's zone of proximal development, mm -hmm. that what's tolerable and coming back to core safety, but really you're having to go to those um, fragmented right brain instinctive sensation understanding and the meaning making of the left hemisphere, but you have to do both. Yeah, the dance. Some, yeah, 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 all about the dance. And I had just by interesting timing last week, some cat supervisor training where we did a lot of mapping the process where we just hear a supervisee talking to a supervisor then someone's in the background doing all the mapping of the process mm -hmm. whilst the content is being discussed so we're trying to feed back and that's where the attachment lens particularly mm. in cat language has a huge amount to offer of let's see what the intersubjectivity landscape is like because you can't always see it when you're in it you sometimes need another voice mm. and that's where I think the team 
can work really well at bringing that in, but we need a common framework and a common language. So even if people don't understand all of the deep theory that underpins SIP, mm-hmm. or, or go into different levels of understanding, right. I think concepts there that are very transferable to different professions. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, mm. I wanna, and this was perhaps for our next meeting, but um, the part of the work that I'm doing in my doctoral program right now is really taking time to articulate and uh, sort of synthesize, resynthesize uh, the components of what we're coming to call uh, SIP uh, supervision model, SM, so SIP-SM. Um, and just hearing you describe some of the things that were coming to your mind in the uh, CAT supervision training. Um, yeah. That is one of the models that I'm reviewing as well for integration into uh, into SIPSM. What have you thought of just very briefly <laughs> um, in the way of um, looking at what CAT offers and how to then integrate SIP? Because you said the, the theory, yeah. um, it's important to have a common framework and language. And that's central to the, even the impetus behind developing SIP. So I'm just curious where your mind is at and then we can kind of move on to other things. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the, the training I did last week reminded me that it's all in the room um, and the intersubjectivity is the work. Yeah. Um, and you, you can, um, and you need to be aware of the, as we said, the impact of trauma. And I think sometimes the intersubjective space can feel stuck if there's something blocking the process because of the trauma that's unresolved. However, you shouldn't there then put down the cat frame and pick up EMDR, which I think can be the problem with too much picking and choosing of integration, that there's something about how do you integrate that still speaks to all of these theories at the same time. Yeah. And what, what I loved about the, the CAT um, supervision model that they, they were embodying is when you map the process. And when I talk about mapping, um, Steve Potter, who's written a book called Therapy with a Map is an absolutely yeah. fantastic resource. He is um, a long-standing member of the CAT community who's added a huge amount to speed supervision and various other things. And this idea of dialogue sequence analysis mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. that comes in, that it's literally, it's all there in the first minute. If you pick apart the moment to moment interactions. So what we were able to do in the training last week was I, for example, would observe two people role-playing a supervisor, supervisee, co-supervisee, talking about a case. And the supervisor was trying to map and help the, the supervisee. But separate to that, I'm sitting mapping the process of the supervision into subjective space. And I hear things that that, that because of the nature of being one-on-one, you're not aware of, that when I then fed that back to the group 10 minutes later, and it's amazing, this doesn't take more than five, 10 minutes. You do not need to know anyone's history because it's all- It's right in the room, yeah. It's all in the room. And even just the pause points where there was a moment of discomfort where something painful was discussed and then it moved on to something else. Actually, isn't that, there, isn't that a non-responsive significant other in the history that has just led to that? Like, it just writes itself, but yeah. you've got to have the confidence 
to go with your gut instinct and your intuitive, what you're seeing. You can't edit that process mapping really by thinking, I can't say this to the group because they're going to take this critically or that they are just reflecting what you observed. Right. Yeah. And of course what happens is it, it's an absolutely iterative process. So when I fed that back, the supervisee goes, Oh my gosh, I have a different perspective and that's reminding me of the client. And then I feed back what I'm hearing and it just shows you that you need to have that intersubjective space as the focus, but you also need multiple voices. Supervision has to be core and teamwork and culture has to be core. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's really what we're working on is um, breaking out. And I'm not sure what it's like there in, in the UK, but breaking us away from this idea that supervision is simply a uh, you know it's a fixed amount of time wherein the intention is to certify or stamp your competence and then release you from this observational period and that's really what we you know my doctorate is in counselor education and supervision and really what we're trying to do is to say actually supervision needs to be the main focus of our field and really something that we're a part of for the rest of our of our lifespan as helpers, not just as okay. being supervised, but as being a part of supervisory culture and really participating in this larger sort of meta analysis um, that's going on in the room, like what you just described, a supervisor, supervisee, co-supervisor, um, that sort of third eye looking into the room. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's that is the model for CAP, particularly that you get ongoing supervision, that, that it happens in groups. So you pick up on the processes that the unspoken thing in the room needs to be held by somebody or even if you're holding the unspoken thing, because then you've got the cultural voice that's not being heard or the gender mm-hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. Not. So yeah, that, as you said, yeah. are just not readily uh, acknowledgeable by the dyad that's in the enactment or in the conversation. Yeah, Um, Yeah. Yeah. that's it. And actually, I had supervision earlier today with my supervisor that I spoke to you about last time and just two brief things that she said to me today that were really helpful and feed on this as well were, you know, because she's very into embodiment as human beings, our eyes are forward focused. So we, we do in interactions with others, we are designed to just see what's the tension. Yes. Yeah. Um, Then the the pull to many practitioners, particularly the clinical psychology practitioners in the UK is on doing, not being. And psychotherapy gives you, and I feel SIP gives you the permission to be because you're held as a practitioner with these theories and these case conceptualization frameworks mm-hmm. to then go fully into that intersubjective space without apology, without feeling that you're not doing the therapy work. Okay, guys. So I'm positive that you enjoyed listening to Melon Bridger's conversation. Yes. <laughs> she is always a pleasure to talk to. Yes. Um, so the next thing that we want to share with you guys is one of our local ambassadors. Her name is Andrea Bishop, and she is the senior clinician and supervisor at Ozarks Counseling Center here in Springfield, Missouri, which is a beautiful nonprofit organization that has a dual mission of offering uh, therapeutic services to the community at a very reduced rate. Um, and also has uh, the other mission of uh, launching new therapists into the community um, and really nurturing young therapists or you know newly minted therapists uh, that are fresh out of school 
and they have just a, a wonderful culture in their uh, center. And we were invited to come into relationship with them because Andrea, um, well, she'll tell the story. And so I'm going to let her tell the full story. But the shortest version of it is, is that after she was first introduced to SIP, she immediately asked if we would be willing to enter into a long-term relationship <laughs> with their uh, agency and um, provide the SIP training for all of their staff, but also do ongoing consultation. And uh, that's exactly what we've been able to do. And we have learned so much as a community all together. Um, but she has been one of our hugest promoters and supporters of SIP here locally. And so we wanted to share with you guys her very passionate words about it Yes. Um, so that you could hear not only her excitement, but the very unique ways that she is looking to apply SIP in their agency, because a lot of you guys work in agencies hmm. and sometimes, you know, that feeling of, well, okay, agency life is very different than private practice life. And that's true. Um, but one of the nice things about SIP is that it applies no matter where humans are. That's right. <laughs> and believe it or not, agencies are full of humans. Believe it uh, or not. <laughs> and we want it to feel even more that way. Yeah. Um, and so Andrea and her team have done just a an amazing job of creating a culture that still meets all of the requirements that an agency must meet and feels supported by what SIP is able to do in terms of not only helping them meet their goals with their clients more effectively, but really feeling um, culturally supported as a team. And so we're going to uh, share her interview as well so that you guys can listen to Andrea be super excited about SIP. Yes. One thing I really love about this uh, practice is how passionate they are yeah. in adopting this model. Yeah. Even so, to um, create uh, supervision, mm -hmm. um, tracking. Mm-hmm documents and even platforms electronically to yeah. help uh, monitor sessions and things like that. They just want to really yes. adopt this and make it so accessible to the clinician who yeah. has all of these uh, stipulations and requirements and mm -hmm. expectations on them from insurance companies yeah. and from just agency culture in general. Yeah. So uh, yeah, listen in to mm -hmm. Andrea talk about her experience with SIP and, and Beyond Healing. I'm Andrea Bishop, Executive Director of the Betty and Bobby Allison Ozarks Counseling Center, a nonprofit community mental health clinic in Springfield, Missouri. About six months ago, I attended EMDR training led by Jen Savage and Melissa Sundwall. In that eight-week consultation period following the training, each trainee practices new skills and then returns to the group every other week to receive feedback on how it's going for each of them. Jen consulted with half the group and Melissa consulted with the other half, and I was in Melissa's group. As I listened to each case presentation, I noticed that Melissa was able to quickly pinpoint the root cause of the client's suffering, even if it was a very complicated case, or to add an additional observation to deepen the consulting clinician's understanding of their client. Keep in mind, Almost everyone was an experienced, clearly competent clinician who was adding the EMDR tool to their practice. I've been practicing for 12 years and have 10 to 12 intern and PLPC supervisees at any given time, for instance. But what Melissa was doing, how she was looking beyond the symptomology to what each client needed to address was clearly a level beyond what the rest of us were able to do. When I commented that I admired her case conceptualization skills, Melissa mentioned 
that her Beyond Healing group was doing a three-day workshop the next month on case conceptualization. But it was a few hours away at a time when it would be hard for me to get out of the office. So I asked if they were going to offer one closer to home, but that wasn't going to be for about nine months. A colleague and I had been talking about working on a model of integrated psychology, and I thought that this workshop would help speed that process along. So I went ahead and took a chance on the earlier but inconvenient 90-minute drive-each-way option. I'm not all that big on meant-to-be, but holy cow, has this all gone down like it was meant-to-be. I drove down to the somatic integration processing training on a Thursday really early, as Jen and Melissa and their partner Bridger Falkenstein, who were all clearly very talented, began explaining their model of case conceptualization that morning, I started to see that it was a very complex and well-researched method which drew together ideas from neuropsychology, attachment theory, and adaptive information processing to get started. My education is in clinical psychology, which heavily emphasizes research, so I've been trained to take a skeptical, scientific approach to new information. They emphasize the fact that their case conceptualization model was based on findings that are not new or unique to them. However, the way in which they drew together the large amount of existing empirically supported psychological information to create a lens through which to view the client certainly is something new, uh, or was new to me. And there was a bonus. Not only is SIP a case conceptualization method, but it leads to a way of being with the client in a new body-focused and attuned way. That first morning, I began taking extremely detailed notes about what was being said. Our nonprofit counseling clinic devotes every penny we possibly can to pay for a direct client treatment. So we routinely take turns to going to outside workshops and then come back to present a condensed highlight reel version to our colleagues in order to save money. I wanted to make sure that I could do justice to SIP when I brought it back to my peeps, so I was working really hard taking notes. But by day two, I understood I could not hope to present the richness of SIP myself and was using the breaks to try to figure out what grants I could write to be able to send my coworkers to the training. By day three, I was so excited by the possibility of what SIP could do for our clinic and our clients, it was clear that we had to find a way to get support to bring the Beyond Healing people to our clinic so that everyone could learn the same information at the same time. And that did happen. We are two-thirds of the way through a hybrid workshop consultation period, and the whole project has been an absolute triumph. Halfway through the first morning, our group of about 20 was buzzing with excitement about the possibilities of SIP, which was so gratifying that everyone, no matter where they are on the spectrum of experience, could immediately grasp what an important addition this would be to their practice. Sure did make me feel good. From a workplace perspective, integrating SIP into our respective practices has further strengthened what was already a really collegial culture. It has really brought us closer together. We're from a variety of different theoretical backgrounds, but no one has had to give up any of their favorite effective tools. 
Instead, the Beyond Healing team has taken the time to explain how different modalities as disparate as CBT and so psychodynamic and everything in between can be integrated with SIP case conceptualization and practice. It has even re-energized a few experienced therapists who have said they were going through a burnout phase. We run some of our most challenging and complex cases through the model to get ideas for more effective treatment. We are now better able to help the client understand the generation of their issues because better understanding the why helps normalize whatever the client's issues are and gives hope as treatment is more accurately targeted. We've learned to lean into the intersubjective space and engage with our clients, co-regulate our nervous systems, all as part of the treatment process. We're proud to say we're an SIP practicing clinic and look forward to continuing to grow in this direction to bring a deeper, richer experience to our clients. Across the board, we agree, practicing from an SIP experience has upped our game, and we highly recommend its use for more effective therapeutic treatment. Okay, guys, so thank you so much for listening to both of those interviews and our thoughts about our beautiful baby named SIP. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we love her very much. Um, but the, the main point of doing this bonus episode was to invite you guys to be a part of what we're doing and to become an integrated part of our community and really believe that, you know, you can get connected to this too. You don't just have to be a fly on the wall listening in. Um, we really, really want to support as many therapists as we possibly can. And this is our favorite way to do it is to provide training, um, that becomes a supportive theoretical conceptualization model for you guys in whatever, uh, work you're doing and whatever modalities you're using Mm. Um, so our biggest invitation today is to get trained in SIP in SIP 1 because we do have SIP 2 coming soon as well that's right so exciting but yeah so we have those two trainings coming up one virtual in July and one both seated in Tulsa Oklahoma and virtual in October Mm -hmm. and to get more information about that you can go to our website at beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab and look at the SIP trainings we also have other trainings available um, and so if you're you know needing to be EMDR trained or know other clinicians that do that's an option and we also have a trauma-informed care training which is for people besides therapists it's yeah. great for therapists too. Great for therapists as well. Um, but we also do, you know, big group trainings for agencies, so all the staff can be trained in nervous system and trauma informed relating and connection. Right. Um, so we've got lots of offerings f- there for you guys to look at. If you have any questions about the trainings, you can always email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Um, or get on any of our social media and send us a message there yes. because we have somebody that checks that for us and makes us answer those questions. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even if we're a little late sometimes, yes. we always get them answered. Uh, thank you to Brooklyn, our yes. assistant. Yes. Shout for out that. to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Who takes care of all that. She also of that. creates the posts. That's true. Which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out to us if you guys have any questions. And we would most of all love to actually get to meet you yes. in person, even if it's virtually, just to see faces of listeners and to connect 
with you as a human being is hands down our favorite thing that we get to do. That's right. So, uh, yeah, come and join and be part of our community and stay tuned with beyond healing, uh, just culture and the things that we're posting because so much is getting ready to happen in the fall, um, with our website Mm -hmm. and with, uh, just a rebranding movement and Mm -hmm. all of, uh, the work that's been going into the Institute. And so we're very, very excited to share that with you. So stay tuned with that and please come and see us. Yes, we would love that. Talk to you soon, guys. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.